My freshman year at UNC Charlotte, there was a, a guy who lived right next door to me who ended up becoming a great friend. And the Lord, I think, placed him right there next door to me in this dorm of 500 freshmen, 518 year olds, which never seems like a good idea to put 518 year olds in one building. But by God's grace, that this guy that was put next door to me ended up becoming a good friend. And uh, he shared with me a lot of things about his faith. I came off to school, I think, in a weak place in my faith. And the Lord used those college years to help grow me closer to Jesus and to take the things that I had heard growing up from my parents and from my church and by God's grace to put them into practice. And this brother was a great encouragement to me. He had a love for Christian quotes. And he kept a book of these kind of famous Christian quotes of missionaries and well-known Christians and scholars and authors. And I would always go in there and ask him for a quote of the day. And he'd have some. This was before smartphones and all that. I went to school in the late 90s. So we actually had books we would read. Imagine that. Qu- quote of the day. And, uh, and I remember him reading one time for me the famous last words of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer. And I looked this quote up this week. In his last moments, Luther was asked by his, his friend, do you want to die standing firm on Christ and the doctrine you have taught? And his famous last words According to this, were yes, Luther's last words were, we are beggars, this is true. Beggars for the grace of, of God. Famous last words. Richard Baxter, another well-known 17th century Puritan theologian, his famous last words, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. His last recorded words. Not everybody gets a deathbed. Sometimes death comes upon you suddenly, but you will have some last words. If you die before Christ returns, you will have some last words. I wonder what they will be. It's important for us to consider last words, particularly as we think about the last words of Jesus. You may think back to his last words hanging on the cross, dying. Anybody remember what those famous last words were? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But those were not his last words on earth. You see, he died, he was buried. On the third day, he got up from the dead, and he stayed on the earth for a period of 40 days, risen. And in Acts chapter 1, we actually find his last recorded words on earth before he ascended up to the throne of God. And we would do well as Christians this morning to consider these famous last words of Jesus and how they instruct us on how we are to live. Please turn with me to Acts chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 6 through 11 this morning. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. If you want to take that pew Bible right in front of you, the best way to stay engaged with the sermon is to have a copy of God's Word open. You can take that pew Bible and turn to page 909, 909. We're going to be in Acts 1 6 through 11. If you're visiting this morning, we're glad you're with us. Most of what we do is just preach straight through books of the Bible. Now, we just finished up the book of 1 Thessalonians a few weeks back, and so we're doing a two-part series. This is part two of a two-part series on the mission of the church. Two weeks ago, we were in Matthew 28, looking at Jesus's final commission there in the Gospel of Matthew. This morning, we're in Acts chapter 1, the final commission from the risen Lord Jesus before He ascended. I think it reminds us as Christians, the reason why I wanted to do this series 
in this time is that there's no such thing as a vacation from the commission that Jesus has given us. Summer is for rest. That's wonderful. Summer is for vacation. I plan to do both. But there's no such thing for Christians as a vacation from the Christian mission. And may we be reminded as we start off these summer months of the commission of the Lord Jesus. This morning, we're going to see in Acts chapter 1, as we consider these famous last words of Jesus, how are we to live until Jesus returns? Let's read, starting in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, the full title of the book of Acts, you probably see this written there in your copy of God's Word, is the Acts of the Apostles. It could probably also be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit, because we see this morning that they were empowered for their witness when God gave the promised Holy Spirit to come and dwell inside of them. So Acts is a book of proclamation. It's proclaiming a message. As Christians, we have good news. We didn't make this good news up. This isn't a headline that we just kind of picked out of many headlines and decided this is something we're going to talk about. We have good news that's been handed to us. Jesus himself bearing witness to this good news that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. The eyewitnesses of the apostles handing that message down to us, we proclaim this message. And the book of Acts is important, if you're a Christian, to understand your history, to understand your heritage, where your faith came from. And what I mean by that is where the gospel message was first proclaimed, that empty tomb there in Jerusalem, the message going out from Jerusalem to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and indeed to the ends of the earth. This is the ends of the earth. The gospel did not start in America. The fact that we're meeting this morning is evidence that God is faithful to have sent this message of Jesus out to the ends of the earth. And indeed, this morning, Sunday morning, the morning that Jesus got up from the dead, on every inhabitable continent, there is a witness of Jesus, local churches proclaiming the same message. It'll be in different languages, people may look different, their music may sound different, but the message of all of Christianity is the same. It's this good news of Jesus. In the book of Acts, we see how this good news of Jesus first went out. The Acts, it's a book of proclamation. Now, before Jesus physically left earth, he had a commission to give to his disciples. That's what we see in Acts chapter 1, before he ascended back up to heaven. He had a commission to give to his disciples that would then pass on to all churches everywhere. He gathered his disciples in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and he had one final commission to be his witnesses here on earth. This commission, it's for all of those who follow Jesus. 
all who've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God upon your conversion and your faith in Jesus. So we're going to consider this morning verses 6 through 11 of Acts chapter 1. And the main idea that I want you to see this morning, you can write this main idea down if you're taking notes. Through the Spirit, we receive power to boldly proclaim Christ until He returns. Through the Spirit, we receive power to boldly proclaim Christ until He returns. That's what we see in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. As we make our way through this passage, we're going to split this main idea up, and I want you to see two different parts here. In verses 6 through 8, we see the power to proclaim. The power to proclaim. Back in verse 4, Jesus had told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for God's promise of the Spirit, that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, meaning they would receive the Holy Spirit of God not many days from when he was talking to them. And upon hearing those instructions and upon hearing that promise, his disciples had a question there in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is probably the, the most familiar verse in Acts 1. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. It's un- important to understand that what we read in verse 8 is a response to this question in verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, the Spirit of God coming was connected in the Old Testament to the kingdom of God coming. So the Spirit of God, kingdom of God connected. So when the disciples heard Jesus saying this promised Spirit of God, all the way back from Joel chapter 2, one of the most noteworthy places of this promise, this promise of the Spirit of God got them to thinking about the kingdom of God coming. So if the Spirit was coming, what about the kingdom of God? Now the disciples, they weren't completely off with this question. And what I mean by that is that you see that that Jesus doesn't outright reject this question. Rather, he clarifies it. He had been talking, and we went through Matthew, and we looked at the parables of the kingdom of God. He'd been telling them what his kingdom was going to be like, that his kingdom is not of this world. In other words, the kingdom of God and Jesus was not going to be like worldly kingdoms. But here was one final time for him to clarify upon his resurrection what the kingdom of God was going to look like. Now, Jesus had always been clear with them that his kingdom would not look like the kingdom of this world. And their question about restoring the kingdom of Israel, it was focused on on a physical, earthly kingdom, a national kingdom, the kingdom of, of Israel. They may have been looking back to the glory days of King David, the great king of Israel, asking the question, Lord, are you going to restore glory to Israel now? Because they were under Roman rule, foreign occupiers, foreign enemies ruling their city. They were looking forward to the messianic promise that God would place a forever king to reign there in Jerusalem. They were expecting the Messiah to bring political power. They were expecting the Messiah to bring military power that in their day would overturn the oppression of Roman rule and restore power to Israel. But the kingdom of God would not come in these political terms, in the military terms that they were thinking of. 
You see, with Jesus, the Messiah, coming down to earth, dying on the cross to pay for sin, rising from the dead on the third day, with the Spirit coming to be poured out on all of God's people, the kingdom indeed was being restored, just not in the way that they were thinking about it. Now, kingdoms typically get measured in physical space. Have you ever been to the United Kingdom, the UK? That's a physical place. You can fly into London's Heathrow Airport. That's a physical place you can go and visit. If you've never been there, maybe just a few weeks ago, you saw the coronation of the king, a king in a place in a real realm there. That's the way that that kingdoms are typically measured. Yet the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. You see, until Christ returns, the kingdom of God's a spiritual kingdom, not a physical place right now that you can go and visit. It's a spiritual kingdom, meaning the kingdom of God is the present spiritual realm that Christ rules in and reigns in. The only way into the kingdom of God, John chapter 3, Jesus explained this, is to be born again of the Spirit of God. The only way into the spiritual kingdom is by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So this kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, it would not be a national kingdom that would immediately be completed. Rather, it's a kingdom that would gradually expand slowly over time to expand to the ends of the earth in the name of Jesus. Now, one day, God's kingdom, it will be established fully and finally here on earth. One day it will be a physical place that all believers will live in. All the redeemed of the Lord from the past, from the present, and those still yet to come to the Lord before Jesus returns. And you can read more about that in Revelation chapter 21, the last book of the Bible, the new heavens and the new earth, a place where you'll live with God fully forever. But Jesus teaches them it's not time for this yet. In verse 7, we read that the timing of the kingdom of God was not for them to know. You might think, well, that that would be a difficult way to live, to not know when Jesus is returning and the kingdom of God is living. But he says there's a couple of things you can know. One, the Father's already fixed the time, meaning this is surely happening. The date has already been set. Just as surely as today is real, there's a real day that's coming when Jesus is returning. Number two, he says, though, because you can't know, because the timing cannot be predicted. So if anybody ever tells you they know the date the world's going to end and Jesus is coming, you can know immediately they're wrong. You can't know that. Every prediction that everyone's made in the past, it's been wrong because we're still here. If Jesus would have returned, we would have known it. That would have been an unmistakable moment. In other words, don't be preoccupied with the timing Be preoccupied with the mission of Jesus. Give your attention to that. Those who follow Jesus should have a concern with not trying to necessarily figure out the timing of Christ's return, but rather a concern to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth until he does return. We read in verse 8 that the national power is not what you'll receive, but there's something you will get. The word but there suggests an alternative. Power is indeed coming. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. This is a promise from the risen Lord Jesus. The power given to all believers and immediately there in Jerusalem would not be given to conquer Roman armies, but rather to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. 
they would be empowered for their witness of Jesus. Now, the apostles, they were already saved. Their faith was already in Jesus. But there's something that they were soon going to receive. The indwelling presence of the Spirit of God living inside of them. They would, be, they would receive power when that moment would happen. And this was something they needed to wait for. Now, they had to wait about a week and a half. Ten days later is when they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You can read more about that in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, when the Jews received the Holy Spirit. Later on in the book of Acts, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, showing that all who put their faith in Jesus Christ received the Holy Spirit. There's a unity amongst believers in the Holy Spirit of God. Now today, that works differently. That was the book of Acts and how things were unfolding in that moment. Today, all believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit at the moment of their conversion. The moment that you're born again. The moment that you've heard the gospel and by God's grace repented of your sin against God and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The moment you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as second-class Christians. It means we all share in the Spirit of God. And so the main focus of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's power. It's the power that comes to all believers who've received the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the apostles will be marked by the spiritual power of the Holy Spirit of God. And with this power, the plan for expanding the kingdom of God is laid out. Think about verse 8. Here's the plan of expanding the kingdom. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, the witness of the apostles, it's different from you and me. The apostles, they all were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They could testify he was dead and we saw him alive. We talked to him. We touched him. We ate meals with him. He is surely alive. And it wasn't just them. Hundreds of people were eyewitnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But notice that their preparation to be witnesses for Jesus, it wasn't complete until they received the Holy Spirit, until they received that power. So the Spirit coming would give them power to testify to Christ with boldness. In other words, the Holy Spirit and Christian ministry are necessarily connected. It means we don't labor on our own strength. We don't proclaim the good news of Jesus on our own strength. We don't have endeavors for evangelism or mission on our own strength. Rather, the reason we want to pray so much in this local church is because we're depending upon the Holy Spirit. We're in a spiritual battle, a battle that's not against flesh and blood, a power that's not against people, a power rather that's a, a, a war rather that's against the powers of darkness. And therefore, it's a spiritual battle that we engage. Jesus said, you'll have power and you'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, what does this word witness mean? Well, that Greek word there for witness, it means one who witnessed unto death. We actually get the English word martyrs from that word, meaning dying for your faith in Jesus. That requires boldness. 
Some of the apostles lacked when Jesus was was taken to, to be hung and killed on the cross. They lacked that boldness, but then he rose from the dead, and they're filled with the Spirit of God. And the rest of Acts, it's a, it's a book of bold proclamation of the gospel. That boldness came from the Holy Spirit of God. And while this word witness certainly refers to the witness of the apostles, the apostolic witness, it also refers to the ongoing witness of the local church. As we continue to proclaim that message of the apostles, all Christians receive the Spirit, therefore all Christians are witnesses. Even as you go through the book of Acts, you get to chapter 8, and you start to see Christians that are being persecuted, and Christians scatter, and they go and proclaim the message. So the trajectory is set there for the rest of the New Testament that all Christians, all of those filled with the Spirit of God, are witnesses to Jesus. A witness speaks the truth about Jesus. So you and I were called to be witnesses, meaning we speak the truth about Jesus, who He is. He's the eternal Son of God, truly God, truly man. What He did, He died on the cross to pay for sin. He rose on the third day. He's our ascended, reigning Savior who one day is returning. You see, witnesses speak the truth about Jesus. And being a witness involves your whole life. It doesn't mean just singing songs on Sunday morning or sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. It means at home, when you go home today, that you're a witness of the love of God in Jesus Christ. It means when you go to work, you're a witness of the love of God in Jesus Christ. It means that in your marriage and with your kids and with your neighbors and with your coworkers and with your classmates, you're the same person. Not perfect, a sinner saved by God's grace who tells the truth about Jesus. You see, being a witness means you boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I wonder how often we misunderstand what boldness is. Sometimes you may wrongly confuse boldness with a personality trait. Well, here's a really bold person. I'm just not as bold as this person in the church. Or or maybe, you know, this person's, they've been a Christian for a long time and they have a lot of knowledge, so they're really bold. And I'm a new Christian, so I'm just not bold yet. Friends, boldness is not a personality trait. Rather, it's something that comes from the Spirit of God. Verse 8 tells us that they would have this bold witness when the Spirit of God would come upon them. You see, the Spirit is tied to power, and from that power comes boldness. Boldness to preach the gospel. Boldness to continue to testify to the gospel even when it's costly. In other words, the Spirit of God brings effectiveness in witness and ministry. I remember when I first learned how to share the gospel with those around me. I was a college student. I spent time on a summer project. And one of the ways they trained us to share the gospel is they sent us out on the beach in Myrtle Beach to talk with people about Jesus. Now, if you've ever been to Myrtle Beach, that's probably the last thing a lot of people really want to talk about when they're there on the beach. They didn't come down to the beach to hear some 18-year-old college kid talk to them about Jesus. And so going out there, it can be quite intimidating. And though I'd grown up in church, there was still a lot that I didn't know about God's Word. I remember getting into a conversation one of the first times in a laundromat with a dude next to me telling him, hey, I'm down here for the summer. Uh, We're we're sharing about our faith in Jesus. Could I share with you for a few minutes about my faith in Jesus? And he said yes. And then I shared with him about my faith in Jesus. And he had like five questions he asked me. I couldn't answer those questions. And I felt like a failure. I felt like I'm not ready for this. I'm going to probably do more damage than I am good. And I remember I went back and I was discouraged and talked to one of my friends. 
And he said, listen, uh, you can grow in learning how to answer those questions. But he said, we've taught you and trained you that the only failure in evangelism is the failure to evangelize. He said, you share the gospel with them. There was no failure. You can grow in trying to learn those questions. When you understand that, that there's, there's kind of a, a no-fail evangelism, meaning if we testify to the gospel of God's grace, if we're faithful to proclaim the message and the power of the Holy Spirit, if we recognize that duty belongs to us and results belong to God, that gives us boldness in evangelism. It, it gives us boldness to understand it's the Spirit of God that must save people. I can present the message, but it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that somebody's going to be led to saving faith in Jesus Christ. With that kind of mentality, you can have boldness to say, I can go tell anyone about the gospel. And I, I tell you that that worked for me. The rest of the summer, I remember going up, we were down in the pavilion area of the Myrtle Beach, and we would pick the dude to look the least interested in talking about Jesus and go right up to him and talk to him about Christ. They were totally confused by that. Why would someone approach them? But it helped us have a bold witness to understand the Spirit of God works in the hearts of people. It's our role to share the gospel. The Spirit will empower that, and he will do what he wishes. Well, at the end of verse 8, we see this boldness. It carries on to a scope of witness. Where would they be witnesses? Everywhere. I mean, simply put, everywhere. In Jerusalem, right, their home base, in the surrounding regions, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Everywhere is where the gospel was to go. That was the plan. That's the strategy of the gospel from Jerusalem outward. In fact, this list of geographical places in verse 8, it also serves as an outline of the book of Acts. So this actually happens in the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7, the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12, the gospel spreading throughout Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 through the end of the book of Acts, chapter 28, the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. I Meaning it was already happening in that day, and we, by God's grace, as a local church, are seeking to continue that on. This spreading of the gospel in verse 8, it sets the pace for the rest of the New Testament it sets the pace for the Christian life. Our common mission is that we have good news that needs to get there. It needs to get to people in this city. We have good news that needs to get to your neighbor. We have good news in Jesus that needs to get to your family member. We have good news in Jesus that needs to get to other countries. You will be my witnesses to the end of the earth. The last recorded words of Jesus before he left earth should be of top concern to us. These were his last words, and they should shape our primary concern as a local church. I wonder, Christian, how much of a concern has this been in your life recently? How much of a concern has it been to share Jesus with those around you? How much of a prayerful concern has it been to pray for family members and neighbors and coworkers who don't know Jesus? If God answered your prayers from this past week, who would be getting saved? Let's give ourselves to prayer. Let's give ourselves to proclamation. Let's give ourselves to work. When it comes to your summer plans, how much of a concern will this be? to grow as a witness of Jesus, 
to proclaim Jesus to those around you. We live in the age of the church, the age between the ascension of Jesus and his return. And the game plan's there, verse 8, to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. Voices like yours and mine are how the kingdom of God expands. Voices like yours and mine proclaiming good news, calling people to repent and believe in Jesus is how the kingdom goes forward. Well, I wonder, Christian, how might bearing witness to the gospel be more of a priority in your life this week? Come tonight. We're going to pray tonight about people coming to know Jesus. We've had baptisms recently, last three weeks. I think these are direct results of prayers. I know many of you who are not part of our church have been praying for those who are baptized today as well. But there's a lot of people praying for God to work and to save and that we would see baptisms and those enfolded into the life of the local church. Oakhurst Baptist Church, let's commit to praying for opportunities this week to share the gospel of Jesus with those around us. First, we see power. Next, in verses 9 through 11, we see a promise. Second part, verses 9 through 11, the promise that inspires. Second part of our outline, verses 9 through 11, the promise that inspires. With the final commission delivered to his disciples, Jesus is out. Or rather, he went up. Now, there are only two places in the New Testament that we have documented the ascension of Jesus. The end of the Gospel of Luke, and then Acts 1. And Luke wrote the book of Acts. So Acts is kind of like volume two of the Gospel of Luke. So he closes his Gospel and begins the book of Acts, documenting the same event, the ascension of Jesus. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. On the Bible, Clouds are often associated with a manifestation of God's presence, God revealing His glory. When He came in a cloud, it was heaven meeting earth. That's what it was. You can maybe remember back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 16, verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And throughout the wilderness wandering in the book of of Exodus, God's presence came in a cloud. Same way in the New Testament. Clouds are also seen here in the New Testament to reveal God's glory. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, a cloud covered Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter, James, and John heard God's voice coming from a cloud saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The second coming of Jesus Christ, described in Matthew 24, verse 30, what is Jesus coming on? The clouds. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There's just a few of the many passages where God's presence was manifested with clouds. Now, today is kind of a cloudy day, and maybe that's ruined your afternoon plans. Maybe you've thought about going outside and doing something. It's a cloudy day. But biblically speaking, a cloudy day is a good day. Biblically speaking, it's a day where God reveals himself in his son Jesus. That's what we see in scriptures. When clouds show up in the Bible, good things are happening there with God revealing himself. And here in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, a very important cloud shows up when Jesus ascends up to heaven and takes them, him out of their sight. Luke uses the words here, lifted up. Meaning Jesus left earth. 
He was lifted up. At the ascension of Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, he left this earthly realm to go and dwell in the heavenly realm where he is this morning. He's ruling and he's reigning there. And just as the earthly realm is a real place, you're in a real place right now. This is not a figment of your imagination. You're, you're here sitting in a real place surrounded by people in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a, it's a real place. So is the heavenly realm. It's a real place. That's why Luke, he keeps repeating here the phrase, into heaven. Four times in verses 10 through 11, he uses this phrase, into heaven, saying Jesus left this place, earth, to go to another place, heaven. Heaven is this place where the presence of God the Father is manifested in a special way. His presence is known everywhere, but the reason Jesus taught us to pray, our Father who art where? In heaven is because the very special presence of God is there. Jesus went there to that place in the glory of his Father. Heaven is God's place. One day, Revelation 21, it will be rejoined to earth. It will consume the earth. But Jesus ascended there because his earthly work was done. He came to die. He wasn't taken by surprise by Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. That wasn't plan B. It wasn't his ministry being cut short. It was the plan always for the eternal Son of God to come down to earth, truly God, truly man, to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't possibly live, meaning he perfectly honored God. He perfectly loved God and obeyed all of God's commandments. He loved every single person that he came into contact with, proving who lives like this. This guy must be from God, like he said. Then he laid his life down and he died on the cross, laying his life down in a, a death that was unlike any other death, meaning it was a sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. Three days later, God raised him from the dead, proving that his sacrifice for sin was acceptable to God, proving that he is who he said he was, the Son of God. And then for 40 days after he rose from the dead, he was on earth making appearances, showing, proving that he had risen from the dead to hundreds of people. In that 40-day time period, between him rising from the dead and his ascension, here in verse 9, he was training the apostles, equipping them for ministry, and promising them that the Holy Spirit would come down. With his earthly ministry completed, he went up. It was time for his heavenly ministry to resume. You know, if you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you need to know the only way to God, the only way to heaven, the only way to Jesus, where he is right now, is to put your faith in Jesus, to repent of your sin against God and put your faith in Jesus. A few chapters later in Acts, the apostles say in Acts 4.12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Meaning the only way to be forgiven of your sins against a holy God is to put your faith in Jesus, to repent of your sin and trust in him for forgiveness of your sins. And if you do that, you'll be forgiven of all of your sins. You'll be counted righteous in Jesus Christ. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and your eternal destiny will be secure with Christ forever in heaven. If you've come this morning and you've not yet done that, we would plead with you to do that today, to put your faith in Jesus today. Talk to someone who brought you this morning. One of our members 
sitting around you. Maybe you're sitting with your parents. Talk with them. We'll have pastors at the doors afterwards. We would love to talk with you more about what it would look like to get right with God today and put your faith in Jesus. And for those who've already done that, for those who've already put their faith in Jesus, Christian, if you die before Jesus returns, you get to go up and be with him too. It's the comfort you have. He went before us in death. He suffered death. And he's the only one to come out of the grave to never die again. He didn't disappear. He ascended. He went up to heaven. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him now and forevermore in heaven. He was lifted up out of their sight. And we read in verse 10, in response, his disciples were gazing up. Maybe their jaws having dropped. They they were awestruck. As they're standing there looking up, awestruck, another magnificent scene occurs. Two men in white robes, angels in the form of men, they appear. And what's described here sounds like what's described in Luke chapter 24, with the two angels who appear to the women at Jesus' empty tomb. Biblical witness, two witnesses. Two heavenly witnesses, as they were, explain what just happened. But they begin with a question in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Hear that like a mild correction. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Jesus went up. Why do you stand there? Jesus had given them instructions. Wait for the Holy Spirit and go get on mission. There was work to do. He'd given the promise of the Spirit and instructions, yet they were looking up into the sky. The, the time called not for them to look up, but to look out, to look out to the ends of the earth, to, to look around, to go and to bear witness. Yet they were looking up into the sky. Jesus lifted into heaven. In other words, don't stand there just looking up. And the rest of verse 11 gives the reason why. Jesus is returning. These angels proclaim a promise at the end of verse 11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. To move them from standing there and and, and looking up, to move them to therefore head out, the angels proclaimed a promise, a promise to inspire them, a promise that brings blessed assurance in Jesus. Simply put, Christ will return. Consider the events leading up to the ascension of Jesus and why this is important. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down to earth in a physical body, the incarnation. That's what we recognize at Christmas. Crucifixion, his physical body died. He suffered a real death in his physical body. Resurrection, right? So first, that that physical body, rather, buried in a tomb, laying in a tomb there until the third day, resurrection, physical body raised from the dead. It wasn't merely a spiritual resurrection. Physical body got out of the tomb. At the ascension, physical body went up to heaven. And at the return, this physical body will come back down to earth. It's showing a unity of all that God did in sending the eternal Son of God, Jesus, down to earth to pay for sins. You consider that the ascension of Jesus, though, it, it was private. It was just his disciples. They're almost like a, a private 
showing. But when Christ returns, it won't be private. It will be public. Every eye will see Him return. It will be unmistakable. It will be a moment that every eye will see. And if the disciples were this awestruck by Jesus ascending, how much more will we be awestruck when He returns? When He returns in glory, riding on the clouds. Uh, Christian, that's why I keep asking our church, is the return of Christ a part of your gospel? Is it a part of the good news that you rejoice in? A part of the good news you look forward to? A part of the good news that motivates you and inspires you. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, we see the return of Christ. When we studied that book, it would inspire us and motivate us to live in holiness until Christ returns. Here in Acts chapter 1, we see even a different motivation. In addition to that, that we would be on mission, inspired to be on mission until Christ returns. One day he will return. And when he returns, will he find you? Will he find this local church on mission? You see, the gospel motivates us in worship. The gospel motivates us in obedience to God. The gospel motivates us to serve the Lord more. When our hearts are captivated by the good news of Jesus, when our minds are in awe of God's glory in Jesus, when we stand in awe of just how much God has loved us in Christ, then we'll be filled with zeal and ambition for the name of Jesus to be proclaimed around us, for others to know this great love, for the good news of this great love to go out to the ends of the earth. When we're captivated by the love of Jesus, we will sense an urgency and joy for the good news of Jesus to go out. You see, Christ's return would not come about from his disciples standing and looking up into the sky, but rather by them going out to the ends of the earth. Here, the return of Christ, it's an encouragement to our mission as Christians. In other words, between his going, his ascending, and his coming back, in the time period between the ascension and the return of Jesus, there is an expectation that there is work to do. There's a message to proclaim, a mission to be engaged. Christian, the end is sure. Christ indeed will return one day, and therefore we have an encouragement to labor on in the ministry of the gospel. I wonder how our church can be more focused on evangelism and more focused on missions. I wonder how our church can be more focused on the ministry of the local church to build one another up in Christ, to partner together as a witness of the gospel. I wonder how church could be more than merely a place you plan to be at 1030 on Sunday mornings. Rather, church could be a family together that's engaging a mission, giving generously, praying sacrificially, partnering together in boldness for the gospel to go out. I'm thankful for how this church has done that so far. I'm thankful that this past year we got to report to you at the recent members meeting, our church has given over $70,000 exclusively to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations, just to the mission field. Let's keep giving generously. I'm thankful for how many of you were here yesterday morning downstairs in the basement. I heard there was probably about 40 plus people that heard the gospel as a result of our food pantry ministry downstairs yesterday. I'm thankful for how those things are happening. Let's keep going. Let's keep giving. And by God's grace, let's keep growing. 
I would love to see somebody go on to the mission field from this church. I was talking to the Purvises a while back, and I asked them, I said, can you remember the last time someone left here? Not, not the last time someone came here and preached a message who was a missionary from outside. We love those opportunities, like we have with Matt Tyler a while back. But the last time someone's sitting here, a member left here to go overseas to preach the gospel, and they told me they couldn't remember. I think we need to keep praying. Some of you need to ask, why not you? Why not you? Talk to one of the pastors. Talk to one of our elders. Talk about what it would look like for you to partner with our local church to go out and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. To go from Charlotte to another place for the gospel of Jesus to spread. Who among us might go and bear witness among the nations? Who might move to Turkey? Who might move to Thailand? Who might move to Wales? We're hoping to plant a church, help plant a church here in the next year. Who among us would go to Kurdistan to be with the Stillies, the work of the International Mission Board? Who among us might go to those places with our partnerships to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? Not everybody's called, but I would trust there's someone here this morning the Lord may use and call to go. Let's keep praying. For all of us, we're called to be witnesses. Who might you bear witness to this summer in your family? Who might you be spending vacation with in the next few weeks or going on a trip? What family members could you bear witness to? Even immediate family members in your own household. What about your neighbors? When's the last time you prayed for your neighbor's salvation? Good time to pray today for that. When's the last time you started a conversation with one of your neighbors trying to get to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Pray for their salvation. Pray for the opportunity to start a conversation. Pray and proclaim. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, we've been given everything we need. Nothing is lacking in Christ. We've received the Holy Spirit that empowers us for boldness and ministry. The results are sure. Jesus said, I will build my church. It's sure. It's not up for grabs. It's not something we have to wonder. Things getting too bad in the world where the church won't be successful. The gospel never fails. Brothers and sisters, let's remember duty belongs to us and results, they belong to our God. And therefore, may we remember that through the Spirit, we receive power to boldly proclaim Christ until He returns. Let's ask the Lord for boldness. Let's ask the Lord for help to be faithful in this mission. Let's do that now as we pray. Father, we ask that you would turn our eyes away from the fading and passing glory of this world, that we would remember that your kingdom's not of this world, but rather that we have been those who by God's grace have come to submit to King Jesus, to live in this spiritual kingdom with Him, where we seek to honor Him and obey Him and, and worship Him and proclaim Him as the King of kings to the ends of the earth. And so, Lord, we pray for your help. Lord, we pray as a church that you'd help us to grow in being those who rejoice in Jesus and grow in those who seek to proclaim Jesus to those around us. And Lord, we ask that you'd bring fruit, the fruit of faithfulness in our lives and fruit from our endeavors and our efforts. 
Uh, fruit, Lord, that we would even this week have opportunities to share the gospel. Fruit that we would see people in our families, in our neighborhoods, and at work come to faith in Jesus. Fruit that we would see these churches that have been planted in, in Bangkok and Ankara, Turkey, that continue to flourish and be faithful. Fruit that we would see a church planned in Cardiff, Wales in the next year be established and happen and proclaim the gospel that many would hear and believe. And so, Lord, we ask you to draw near to us, even as we come now, to celebrate the fruit of baptism, the fruit of your saving grace. May we rejoice in you and in your great love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.